1 Peter chapter 3. Peter 3, let's give our attention once more to the reading of God's holy word. We'll begin at verse 8, the beginning of that paragraph. We're focusing mainly on verse 21, but we'll highlight a couple of things in the passage. 1 Peter 3, verse 8, once again, give your attention to God's holy word. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary bless, for to this you are called that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. The grass withers and the flower fades. The word of the Lord endures forever. Amen. And then our catechism lesson is found in the back of the red hymnal. Oh, page 876. Questions 94 and 95, we will read the answers together. Question 94 then, what is baptism? Baptism is a sacrament wherein the washing with water in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost 
doth signify and seal our engrafting into Christ and partaking of the benefits of the covenant of grace in our engagement to be the Lord's. To whom is baptism to be administered? Baptism is not to be administered to any that are out of the visible church till they profess their faith in Christ and obedience to him. But the infants of such as are members of the visible church are to be baptized. Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, let's consider these things together this evening as we seek uh, God's wisdom and his blessing. One might describe Navy SEAL training in, in various ways. Uh, most of us have seen something of it on television or uh, videos on the internet. But perhaps two ways you might describe them are first a, a trial by fire, which makes sense in that it, the the most excruciating time of their training is a five or six day period that's often referred to as Hell Week. Uh, Navy SEAL Hell Week is a five and a half day stretch in which candidates, I'm quoting here from the Navy website, candidates sleep only about four total hours, run more than 200 miles, and do physical training for more than 20 hours per day. The toughest training in the U.S. military. It is often the greatest achievement of their lives, still quoting, and with it comes the realization that they can do 20 times more than they ever thought possible. It is a defining moment that they reach back to when in combat. They know that they will never, ever quit, nor let a teammate down. Trial by fire, but this training creates something of a, of a new person, doesn't it? And that's why you could almost refer to this intense time of training as a baptism. It's a baptism because it ushers them into a new norm of life. I also understand they're probably in, in water for a lot of the time anyways. They emerge from that week as those who will never ever quit, no matter what the cost. They emerge as those who will be the toughest in battle. They emerge as those who will never let a teammate down as long as they are breathing. And that is one particular, particular meaning of baptism uh, that we are going to especially zero in on this evening, especially as we grow in our understanding of the meaning of baptism, which is a process that continues for all of life. And that's something that particularly the larger catechism talks about. I'm going to talk about that a little bit uh, more. But we become governed more and more by a new norm of life, right? the process of sanctification, of being conformed to the image of Christ, of growing in our love and devotion and obedience unto our God. All of those things are growing in what First Peter describes as having a good conscience. We'll think about what that means and how it relates to baptism and how that brings us to the practice of what's called improving your baptism. Let's consider these things together. First, the meaning of baptism. Verse 21 that we looked at, that we read in 1 Peter 3, says baptism corresponds to something. What does it correspond to? It corresponds to the salvation of eight people in the flood that they, that they experienced in 
the ark. Baptism is a sign of being saved from the judgment waters. Baptism is a sign that in Christ, the waters of judgment will not remain upon you. There are other things that are signified, right? The cleansing, the water is a a water of cleansing, but there's a, uh, there's a picture there that we have to understand that there's a, a judgment ordeal going on in baptism, and those who are in Christ emerge through, just as Noah and his family emerged through the flood and safely made it to the other side. Christ is then our ark who brings us through the judgment. As we've talked about baptism is a proclamation of the gospel. It accompanies the the preaching of the word. It's a presentation of all that is true in Jesus Christ. And if you trust in him, if you place your trust in him, you will be brought safely through the judgment waters. You will emerge as those who still have life on the other side. Baptism corresponds then uh, to that picture. It's an assurance to us that in Christ we can have salvation. There also is, here in verse 21, corresponds to that picture of uh, the flood. But it says that baptism saves us not as a removal of dirt from the flesh. In other words, the, the, the outward nature of the sign is not what saves. And again, we, we talked about this last week. We have, need to remind ourselves that uh, our understanding of the sacraments is, is not that they are magical. They are spiritual means of grace but to have the water placed on you does not mean in and of itself that you have the benefits and the blessings of baptism. To come to the Lord's table, to simply bring your physical body to the table, and to have the bread and the cup does not mean that you receive the blessings of the Lord's Supper. So here we have a caution in this verse Baptism saves you not as a removal of of dirt from the flesh, not the outward nature of the sign. And and here we could say things about uh, the errors of uh, both uh, sacramentarian traditions like the Roman Catholic Church and Eastern Orthodoxy, and even uh, more low church Protestant traditions that place the, the, the receiving of the Holy Spirit and tie it to the exact moment of baptism. Belief of the sacrament is that the the efficacy, the blessings of baptism, are not tied to the moment of its administration. And that's a key point when you think about baptism's lifelong significance. What I want us to, to grasp tonight is that it's something that we need to reflect upon. It's something we need to thank God for, and we grow in our understanding of it as uh, we grow in our faith. But what this means is that uh, in baptism saves us not as a removal of, of dirt from the flesh, is that when baptism is properly used, when there is faith that is attached to that sign of baptism, then there is grace that, is, that truly comes to the believer. It's true whether we're talking about a, a convert outside of the church that, that comes to baptism or someone baptized as a child who then grows up to express a vital and true faith in Jesus Christ. In other words, it's a a real means of grace. It's more than just a sign. There is a blessing there for those who are given faith in Christ. What is signified in baptism? Well, as the catechism says, are engrafting into Christ. Again, the the picture of 1 Peter chapter 3, you will 
uh, make it through the flood of judgment if you are on the ark of Christ. I've talked about this before. It's one of the reasons why I, I love the, the classic architecture of how we used to build churches. So our church is built that way. It's, it's built in order to look like an ark. That's really the, the kind of building you're sitting in. The, the message to those who pass by our church is to be inherently through the architecture of the way this is built. Come and get onto the ark. Come and join yourself to this community because this community is the one which has salvation, which proclaims it. Come to Christ and come find your place on the ark that you may make it safely through the judgment waters. Salvation comes in Jesus Christ and there is is union that is signified in baptism, baptized into Christ. And that, of course, is the spiritual reality of what happens in salvation. When a, a, a sinner turns from, from dead, uh, from death and, and, and eternal condemnation to life in Jesus Christ, they are united to Him. And it's only in Jesus Christ that you will have spiritual life and salvation and eternal blessings. Jesus gives us the picture of the vine and the branches in John 15. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. So the branch receives life from the vine. That's where the, the nourishment comes. That's how a branch can bear fruit, because it's connected to the vine. If it's cut off, it will cease to receive those nutrients. The same goes for our connection to Christ. We only have our spiritual life in Christ as we are grafted into Him. Obviously, baptism is a, a sign of forgiveness of sins, and we see that all throughout the Scriptures. They are um, said one, and, uh, one next to the other. Mark 1, verse 4, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Acts chapter 2, Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's a sign that one needs to be forgiven. And, and that's, in some sense, should surprise us for parents of, of young, beautiful children, especially first-time parents, right? The, the baby is so perfect, depending on how early you baptize the child. You wait a few months, they'll be thoroughly convinced of the child's sinfulness and need to be forgiven. You bring this cute little beautiful baby to present them for baptism, you're saying, this is a child that needs to be forgiven. And though we may look upon them and see their beauty and the wonder of all that God has made, we say the greatest reality that this little child could experience is to know that they are cleansed in Christ. And certainly when adult converts are, are, are brought to baptism, uh, that is cognizantly known in their heart and in their mind. They're, they're coming because they're saying, I need the forgiveness that Jesus Christ gives to me. Forgiveness of sins, not only 
in grafting into Christ. The new birth, too. The, Titus 3 talks about the washing of regeneration. There's a, a new life, a new birth that's pictured in, in baptism that creates a, a new norm, as we talked about at the beginning tonight. The Catechism also says it our engagement to be the Lord's. Baptism signifies the radical new life that proceeds from the new birth. It creates that, that new norm, just like the dramatic and excruciating training of a, of a top-level soldier. One of my uh, college teammates became an army ranger. He said that, uh, that in their training, uh, they were constantly put out in the cold. And he said the worst part of his training was that all the time he was cold. He said at the end of the training, none of us got cold anymore, right? The new norm for us was that you're going to be cold, so you better get used to it. And they generally stop, stop feeling it. Right? The training creates something new, a new life. Uh, finally, we'll quickly go over this and then go to the, the, the meat of what we want to consider tonight, that the subjects of baptism. This was, a, this was quite a process for me. I, I grew up uh, a Baptist and came to a Reformed understanding of the faith. So when I was in seminary, the subjects of baptism was kind of the, one of the main things that I was considering and, and thinking about. As the Catechism says, uh, the subjects of baptism are believers and their children. And we find throughout the Scriptures that God says, I will be a God to you and your children. And there are many points that I think are convincing to me that I haven't necessarily found to be very convincing to the Baptists I know. And so we have disagreements on that point. But just to mention a few, in the New Testament, in the book of Acts, we see that, that households are baptized, and it's natural to assume then that, that not everyone who would have been baptized in those household baptisms would have been of age to be able to profess their faith in Christ. We also see throughout uh, the New Testament letters that parents are not called to regard their children as, as pagans. Right? as those who are distinctly outside of the covenant community. Not called to evangelize them, but rather to raise them in the fear and the knowledge and the admonition of the Lord. We expectantly await as we raise them responsibly. We still have to put the truths of Scripture before them, but we nurture them in the faith, expectantly awaiting that day when they will express their faith in Jesus Christ. We are to regard our children as God's people. We are to regard our children as having the God of Scripture as their God, and we hopefully anticipate that God will grant them a faith that lays hold of all that is signified to them in their baptism. This is one of the, one of the great things that we can do as parents of young children, that as we're raising them in the fear and the knowledge, the admonition of the Lord, to remind them that they're baptized is to remind them of all the things that God sets before them in the gospel. Lay hold of Jesus Christ. Grab onto him with a believing heart. And the forgiveness that was promised to you there can be known and experienced. We also want to consider this in, in, in verse 21. Baptism saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the flesh, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. What, what is that? And this will take up most of the rest of our time tonight. Well, this word appeal is basically, as it sounds, right, to, to ask a question, to, to, to go to someone seeking something. So to appeal to God for a good conscience is an act of the soul 
that cries out to God for him to heal us, for him to give us the salvation that is held out to us in the gospel of Christ. So when an adult convert gets baptized, or when a child raised in, in the church professes their faith, baptism is in view. Because the sinner comes to God and says to him, yes, I want all that comes to me in Christ. I understand that I need to be saved. I understand that I am a sinner naturally under condemnation, and what I need is the salvation that comes in Jesus Christ and in Him alone. So baptism, then, is a means of grace that reminds us that God will, through Christ, save all who cry out to Him in faith. There's a, there's a vital connection between faith and this good conscience in 1 Peter chapter 3. And we see this elsewhere in Scripture. 1, Peter, or 1 Timothy 1 verse 5 says this, the aim of our charge, in other words, Paul is saying, really the goal of, of all my proclamation is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Right? A good conscience and a sincere faith are joined together. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, speaking of deacons, it says they, the deacons, must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. 1 Timothy chapter 1, back to chapter 1. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. And by rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. They lose the good conscience and they lose their faith. All three of these passages show that it is only by true faith that we can have this good conscience. What is this good conscience? What does it mean to, uh, in, in our, our spiritual lives, have a good conscience in our lives before God? Well, here's a definition. It is cognizantly living your life, being aware, living your life, knowing, recognizing, and believing that everything promised to you in the gospel of Christ, what God says to you, that if you have faith in Jesus Christ, you have eternal life, you're forgiven of your sins, you are adopted in the family of God, you will persevere, you will be glorified, you will be with God forever. All of those things is cognizantly knowing, recognizing, and believing all that is promised to you in Christ is true. And thus you live your life in light of that. You live your life with this good conscience saying everything that God says to me in his word and everything he has promised to me in Christ, I lay hold of that, I believe it, and I live my life in light of it. That's why we see earlier on in 1 Peter chapter 3 where Peter says, you are to have a good conscience when others slander you, when others speak ill of you, when others try to make a mockery of you. Hold on to your good conscience because when someone says to you, it is madness that you believe in Christ, it is madness that you live for him, it is madness that you have taken up your cross and follow him, that you're willingly suffering for this man who came and lived and died on, on, on the cross, it, it is madness to follow him. If you have a good conscience, what do you say? I believe everything that God has 
declared to me. I believe that Jesus Christ is ascended, as it says in verse 22 of chapter 3, that he is reigning, that he is king of kings and lord of lords, that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The good conscience is having the, the sense to see that it is the wisest thing you can do in this life to believe in Jesus Christ. There is nothing wiser that you will do because it means that you have the eternal life that is promised to you. It is, this good conscience is in many ways the formula for, for the Christian life. It's having the confidence to say, yes, everything in Christ, everything in the gospel is true, and I live in light of it. Because I can rarely uh, fight off the urge to do so, I'll I'll quote John Newton. He had a tendency to give these sweeping statements that kind of are all-encompassing formulas for the Christian life. He says this, kind of just describing what a true Christian is, a true believer. He says, the true believer builds upon the person and word of Christ as the foundation of his hope. He enters by him as the only door to the knowledge, communion, and love of God. He feeds upon him by faith in his heart with thanksgiving as the bread of life. He embraces his righteousness as the wedding garment, whereby alone he expects admission to the marriage feast of heaven. He derives all his strength and comfort from his influence as the branch from the root. He entrusts himself to his care as the wise and good shepherd of his soul. Sensible of his own ignorance, defects, and his many enemies, he receives Christ as his teacher, priest, and king, obeys his commands, confides in his mediation, and expects and enjoys his powerful protection. In a word... He renounces all confidence in the flesh and rejoices in Jesus Christ as his Savior, and thus he attains to worship God in spirit and in truth, is supported through all the conflicts and trials of life, possesses a stable peace in the midst of a changing world, and is made more than conqueror through him who has loved him. Oh, that I could write in such a way. The good conscience, then, is not... The ability to kind of look in where we think of the conscience as that which convicts us of sin. And so Peter is not saying that it's, it's kind of having a, a healthy operating conscience that's always snapping to show you where you're going wrong. The good conscience is sim- simply looking inward and saying, Christ's blood actually does save me from my sin. I actually do need to humble myself and come in full reliance upon God and give my all to Him and derive my strength from Him and allow Him to form the way that I'm going to live my life and lean on Him in an ongoing way in my daily practice of repentance and begging Him for His grace and His Spirit, which is how the Heidelberg Catechism tells us to pray, that we need His grace and His Spirit, that we might live for Him in a daily and ongoing way. The idea of a good conscience then means that it becomes our responsibility to grow in our understanding of and cherishing of our baptism. The good conscience, the one who holds a good conscience, will be one that reflects much upon the truths of what baptism means. The larger catechism, which is obviously longer than the shorter catechism, says that uh, the, the practice of improving your baptism is, is a needful practice, but it is much neglected. We often believe that, that baptism has kind of a one-time significance in our lives, but it actually has lifelong significance. 
And we continue to draw strength from the grace that is given to true believers in baptism. John Calvin says this, We ought to consider that at whatever time we are baptized, we are washed and purified once for the whole of life. Wherefore, as often as we fall, we must recall the remembrance of our baptism and thus fortify our minds so as to feel certain and secure of the remission of sins. We daily struggle. And and, and if we were to struggle in such a way, we convince ourselves that, boy, I don't know if, if, if I'm really either walking in fellowship with, with my God or have I uh, lost my interest in Christ? Has God kind of dismissed me? A- am, I, am I outside of, of grace because I'm, I'm really struggling? Well, as Christians, we need to grow in our practice of reminding ourselves that uh, we are baptized and we have laid hold of the promises that are given to us in our baptism by faith. The larger catechism says that there are especially two times that we can improve upon our baptism. All of life, we ought to be doing this. Each day, we ought to remind ourselves, I'm I'm a baptized member of the church. I've been baptized into the triune name, and I am to serve my God because of it. But especially two times at which we can improve our baptism. The first is in times of great temptation. So there we are to recall that we are not our own, but bought with a price, and we must glorify God. When we are in the the hour of trial, the hour of temptation, and we sense that our flesh, the corruption of our flesh, has attached onto something, and we are being drawn into, uh, uh, being appealed to, to, to walk into some sin, and to fall into some sin. As believers, we ought to ask God for the grace to Uh, grow in the practice of reminding ourselves in those moments who we are. Romans chapter 6, consider yourselves as dead to sin and slaves of righteousness. When you understand the transaction of salvation and how you have been brought from death to life, you need to begin to think about yourself in a certain way. Slaves to God, slaves to righteousness, made to serve Him, bought with a price as his servants and remembering and reflecting upon our baptism is one way in which we do just that. Thomas Watson says this, let us labor to make a right use of our baptism. Let us use it as a shield against temptations. Satan, I have given my, uh, up myself to God by a sacred vow in baptism. I am not my own. I am Christ's Therefore, I cannot yield to thy temptations, for I should break my oath of allegiance, which I made to God in baptism. Luther tells us of a pious woman who, when the devil tempted her to sin, answered, Satan, I am baptized, and so beat back the tempter. So, In times of, of great temptation, we remind ourselves of who we have been made to be in Christ. We reflect upon our baptism. We're bought with a price. And through that, we ask that God would give us the grace to stand firm in the time of temptation. We know that God has promised us, you will never be tempted beyond what you are able. Every temptation that you face in this life, you have the ability to stand firm in the midst of it. In 2 Peter, we read that God has given us everything that pertains to life and godliness. He has equipped us to be able to live for Him daily. And we can never say 
No matter what the sin is that we fall into, we can never say that we are not culpable before that or that we didn't have the ability to say no to it. God has furnished us with the ability to stand in the evil day. And thus, when we, when we uh, grow in this practice of recalling our baptism in times of temptation, then we actually grow in our understanding of and appreciation of the fact that we have been made gods in our baptism. The, the second time that we, the second instance in which we can improve upon our baptism is at the administration of others. As the church, as believers, we, we share together in times of baptism. Thus, when, when someone is being baptized, whether it be the child of believers or an adult convert, there is an, a sense in which we're all participating in that means of grace, reflecting upon the fact that we too are baptized, that we have been given this, this matchless blessing to be made gods through this grace. There are other ways of, of improving our baptism or, or what it entails, right? Uh, improving your baptism also means growing up in assurance and all the other graces that God gives to us. To uh, reflect on the fact that you are baptized is to be reminded that, that there is more grace in Christ than there is sin in me. Yes, of course, we all stumble in many ways but to reflect on the fact that God overcomes our sin in the gospel. That there is no one who is so great a sinner that he cannot come to the fount of mercy and grace. As we read in Psalm 34 this evening, blessed are all those who take refuge in him, and all those who take refuge in him will not be condemned. I hope all of you who are here tonight have known that reality. Have you sought refuge in Jesus Christ? For it is in Jesus Christ that you will not be condemned. If you've never turned to God in Jesus Christ, do so. Whether you are baptized or not, lay hold of those promises. He is the ark who brings us safely through the flood. He is the one who will bring you to the other side. He is the one who will give you eternal life. Trust in Him. Believe in Him be saved. We also learn that we draw strength from this, from this gift of baptism in an ongoing way. We pray that God would continue to pour out His grace upon us as His baptized people so that we might mortify our sin, so that we might experience more and more the gifts of His grace. As we reflect upon this, we're, we also uh, endeavor to live in holiness, as we've talked about that a lot, right? Our engagement to be the Lord's. And then finally, uh, we, we learn to walk in brotherly love. The, the last thing that we'll say tonight is, is that it, it creates a unity and a community of baptism. We share in that, that wonderful sacrament that brings us in to the visible church. And thus we live as the community of the baptized. We understand that all of our responsibilities are uh, to be understood in some sense in a communal way. As we are faced with the hour of temptation 
as we recall our baptism, we say, not only am I baptized and the name of the triune God has been placed upon me, but I live in the community of the baptized. And uh, the sins into which I fall are going to be experienced corporately. There's going to be a corporate effect towards what I do. And that's hard for us to grasp in such an individualized and individualistic age. Hard for us to understand the ways in which our sin has a negative effect on the body of Christ. But it does. Even our secret sins, certainly those that come out as public scandals, hurt the body of Christ in immense ways. But there are deeper things, too, that we don't even fully comprehend always, that do harm to the body of Christ when we habitually go on and on in sinfulness. So we walk as the community of the baptized. We bear the same name. We have the same calling. We live for the same Lord, and we are headed to the same kingdom. It not only does it allow us to turn inward and to understand more of who God has made us to be, it allows us to turn, to turn outward, to be filled in love from the heart for our brothers and sisters, to desire not only that we would walk in righteousness and holiness, but that our brothers and sisters in Christ would too. So it brings us back to what we talked about uh, this morning as we are concerned to see what is that which will most equip and spur on living for Christ and his kingdom, to remind ourselves that we live in the community of, of the baptized, uh, will do much of that as we are living for the same Lord, living according to the same calling, and we are headed to the same eternal kingdom. And thus, we are thankful tonight to reflect upon these things as we look at this, uh, this one verse in 1 Peter chapter 3. The good conscience that God gives to us, may we live according to it with a firm conviction that in Christ we're forgiven, we have salvation, we are brought through the flood, watery judgment, we're made to stand in our Savior. Let us live with that as the formula for the Christian life and growing in that grace day by day. Let's pray. So we thank you, gracious God, for that which you give to us, the sign and seal of, of baptism, and this practice that you give to us of improving our baptism. Oh, may we, may we grow in, in just this discipline. We thank you that you furnish us, give us what we need to live lives that are pleasing to you, not in anything that we uh, have brought about in and of ourselves, but because you have transferred us into Christ and given us the Spirit. So make us reliant upon your grace day by day uh, that we may bear fruit. And Father, we do pray that uh, for those who, who have not turned to Christ and trusted in him, that they would do so. That they would understand and know that, that the condemnation uh, under which they, they stand outside of Christ, but in Christ there is eternal blessedness and uh, knowledge of, of salvation. We thank you for all of those things. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.